The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the aspect of his face was changed and his clothes became brilliant as lightning. Suddenly, there were two men there talking with him. They were Moses and Elijah, appearing in glory. And they were speaking of his passing, which was to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were heavy with sleep, but they kept awake and saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is wonderful for us to be here. So let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. As he spoke, a cloud came and covered them with shadow. And when they went into the cloud, the disciples were afraid. And a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The disciples kept silent and at that time told no one what they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Brilliant scene, isn't it? Sort of boggles the mind. What exactly did they see? Friends, last week we heard from the book of Deuteronomy. We heard of our origins as a slave nation. The ancestors were telling their younger generations that the Hebrews were liberated by their God in Egypt. And alongside that, we saw Christ enter the desert. And we saw him tested, we might say, by hunger, the many human needs that we know, by the attraction to power and influence, and by the thought of honour and acclaim. It strikes me, is there any temptation that doesn't fall into one of these three categories? It sort of gathers everything, doesn't it? Everything that takes us off track. If we were to close our eyes and think what most often tempts each of us, I think it would fall into really one of these three things. It would likely be, let's say, a hunger of some kind one of the heart's many cravings. And the heart has many cravings. In fact, we were made with those to guide us through this life. God gives us an appetite for that which is good, beautiful, and true. But we have all sorts of cravings, whether they be biological or emotional or social or whatever. Or perhaps do we find ourselves doing battle with power, trying to fight for our own autonomy, freedom, trying to get our way, if you like. The freedom to choose my own destiny is one of the most sacred freedoms that I have. And of course, if it's under threat, I have to fight for it, right? Or finally, is my battle perhaps about how I am perceived, how I'm viewed by the world? Fundamental to the human spirit also is this need to be known and to be loved. I can have every hunger met, I can have every power and liberty, but if I'm alone in a kind of fundamental way, if I do not enjoy love, I'll wither up and die. 
because we're created in the image of God and God is love. We can't be sustained without it, no matter what we have at our disposal. Well, Jesus goes into the desert and he battles all of these and he wins the battle, really. So our time with the master set aside for us now, church uh, gives us this period, this season of time in the desert and it's privileged time. It's graced time. It's time not to be wasted. Now, however, as our Lenten journey continues, we skip forward five chapters in Luke. We move from that scene in the desert and we go to what we just heard, Jesus revealing his glory. And alongside that, the church presents to us readings, not from Exodus, but even further back than that. Before uh, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, before um, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, even before Jacob had his 12 sons, we have this story of Jacob's grandfather. You've heard the phrase, you've heard the phrase, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, this is that Abraham, going back to Genesis. Who is Abraham? Abraham and his wife Sarah became the first parents in our faith. And in fact, the Jews would look back to him as the father of the faith, and we do as well. We have these things called the Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, one of God's first covenants was established with this humble, faithful, and righteous couple. And we heard it from Peter proclaiming for us, look up at the stars and count them if you can. And the fact is he can't count them, there's too many. Um, these will be your heirs, this will be your inheritance. What happens after that is a very, very strange ritual action. And I think in a sense we're right to be confused by it. It's foreign to our modern minds, but it wasn't at all foreign. It was very commonplace in the ancient world to have these kind of ritual um, agreements, you know, ritual ways of making pacts with one another. But we should know this about what we hear in the reading from Genesis. God does not make contracts with us. This is very important. God does not enter into contractual agreements with us. God invites us into covenant. You might say, what's the difference? Well, there's a world of difference. With a contract, uh, we might say party A and party B, party B agree on something. You know, there's mutual buy-in and there's hopefully mutual benefit to the two parties. But there's terms to the agreement, right? And if party A breaks those terms, deals off. Party B is no longer obligated to anything. Um, if party B breaks the terms of the agreement, deals off. Party A says, our friendship is expired. Go away, you're a stranger. And in fact, often there's compensation because one of the parties was inconvenienced so not only is the deal off, but now you have to make up for it. This is not what God does with us at all. Um, God invites us into covenant. And we see it in that ritual practice. You have those beasts, a heifer and a goat and a ram and birds, and they're sliced in half. That's pretty gruesome. Uh, 
and then the blood is kind of like put in the middle of them. So you've got these beasts and half, you've got this pool of blood. This is where we get the, the phrase cutting a deal. It's also where we get the phrase bloodbath. Um, the symbolic action was meant to say, party A and party B, we agree to this thing. And if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may what just happened to those animals happen to me. May I be split in half and may you walk through my blood. It's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, it's a, it's a horrific ritual action. But what do we see there with Abraham and God? Abraham brings the animals, he slices them open. Does Abraham pass through them? He doesn't get a chance. The God who appears as fire goes through it once and twice. This is astonishing. Because God is saying, the agreement that we have, my dear son Abraham, is that I will give you a heavenly inheritance, more heirs than you can count. Stuff that just withers away in this world can't compare to what I am blessing you with. And what am I asking from you? Perfection of life. I think all of us know that's pretty hard to deliver. So God doesn't hold him to it, if you like. He says, I know that imperfection will punctuate your journey. So let me be slain if that does happen. If and when it happens, I will lay myself down in reparation. It's tremendous, isn't it? The ancient world understood the, the kind of power of ritual symbols and actions. You can't participate in a ritual activity like that without meaning it. You know, that's, don't say that if you don't mean it. Uh, it's far too, far too real, far too raw. Do we understand the power of the ritual actions that we employ? Because we're employing a ritual symbol that's really the most profound that we have available to us on earth here at the altar. Finally, let's see how this foregrounds the story of the Transfiguration. Because it's odd, really, that those two stories would be put together, wouldn't it? Isn't it? So this is a reading from Pope Leo the Great. He's speaking on the Transfiguration. He says, by changing his appearance in this way, Jesus chiefly wished to prevent his disciples from feeling scandalized in their hearts by the cross. He did not want the disgrace of the passion, which he freely accepted, to break their faith. This is why he revealed to them the excellence of his hidden dignity. Jesus knew that his disciples were not expecting his own sacrifice, even though he said it repeatedly. Every time he did, they changed the subject. And eventually, when the time came, all but one ran away. Jesus was left alone to undergo his passion. So Jesus gave them this glimpse of resurrection life, something that Jesus has and desires to give to us, all of us. And that brings us to our second point, and Pope Leo makes it very clear, and I hope this really stirs our hearts, because the resurrection is not just about Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't want to be this kind of idol glowing in the middle of the room and all of us paupers are gathered around him. That's not his vision. I say it time and time again, this theos has been drawn into the divine life. 
We heard it in that reading from Paul. We too will have glorified bodies. He will divinize us so that we shimmer with the same brilliance, so that our clothes look like lightning. Listen to this. With the same foresight, the foundation of his holy church's hope was laid, so that the whole body of Christ, that's us, we're his members, so that the whole body of Christ should realize the nature of that change which it must undergo, and that the members might promise themselves a share in that honor which had already shone around in their head. Christ is the head, we are the body. If Christ is transfigured, transfiguration is where we're going. That's our destiny, that's God's will for us. And if you don't believe it, go and look at the Feast of the Assumption of our Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, she sounds pretty magnificent. Who is this woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon, 12 stars around her head? She's transfigured. Mary is an eschatological sign. That means what we will experience in the fullness of time, we can see it. We can see it when we look at her. We can see it when we look at him. Even as we spend this time in the desert. So friends, as our desert time continues, and it does, Lent is far from over. Look up at the stars. Count them if you can. Um, there's not an infinite number of stars, you know, because if there were, we'd look up at the sky and we'd see white. But we don't see white, we see black with spots of white all over it. There's not an infinite number of stars. There's more than we can count. But there is a number. Likewise, the heirs to this kingdom. There's not an infinite number. There's more than we could ever hope to count. And we are among that number, please God, insofar as we cling to him insofar as we're made radiant like him. But we're in the desert now. So continue to hold strong. Walk with ever greater stride. Keep your eyes heavenward. Look at the models of our faith, this saintly company that goes with us. And lastly, I'll say, our time in the desert is not a time of starvation. We don't wither away into nothing. Israel and their wandering cried out for bread, and they were giving manna, bread from heaven. We cry out, we call on our God in prayer, and we're given bread as well. The bread who is the life and the peace and the grace of the world, who desires us to be made radiant like him, even for eternity.